0: As we turn to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do that. Let's read it together. All people are like grass, all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. As it is, from God's law, the word of our God forever. This morning's scripture is taken from Ezra 1 and 2. Again, the text is Ezra 1 and 2, and I'll be reading from Ezra 1. Hear now the word of the Lord from Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridah, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory, gold dishes, 30, silver dishes, 1,000, silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shezhbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to to Jerusalem.
1: Thank you very much. Um, as we turn to the Lord, let's uh, begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we, um, we rejoice that in the midst of the fog and friction of life, Father, in the midst of the storm, raging uh, storms raging within us, storms raging around us, that we have the un uh, the unshakable, the unchanging, the ever enduring. Word of God, and Father, we recall summons, saying that in fact the grass withers and the flowers fall, that men and women come and go, that uh, Father, there will be ever more pundits, ever uh, more politicians, ever more professors, but Father, there is only one Prince of Peace who has spoken to us through his word, and we uh, pray this morning that you would change us from the inside out and make us change agents in our world. Oh, Father, please bless us that we might be a blessing to the world. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we're going to be, uh, as um, as I mentioned, jumping into Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I'm going to cover the first two chapters, and I want to do so um, just actually just with relative brevity. Ezra's—these uh, ch- Ezra's, first two chapters are— are, are, are powerful. This is, I don't know, some of you, this is uh, perhaps you are new to Christianity, you're exploring the Christian faith, and you don't, you don't really know much about Christianity, and you, you come to church and you think you think everyone else knows about the Bible except for me. Well, I'll tell you what, I bet you there are Christians here who've been Christians a long time who've never even read the book of Ezra or Nehemiah. So you are on the same ground as everyone else. This is a book that, books of the Bible that sadly we, we don't talk about too much, but they're an extremely powerful set of books. Ezra and Nehemiah, although in the Bible, are two different books. They're actually one author. One, they're a united text, if you will, a united story. And they speak of a time in the the history of God's people that is marked by a sense of defeat, an overwhelming sense of futility. If you know the story of God's people, you know that, that what God does is bring his people out of the land of Egypt as slaves, and then brings them from, uh, from uh, Egypt into the, to Mount Sinai, where he makes a covenant with them and establishes him as their God, and them as his people, and then brings them into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And it's there in the promised land that they, they, uh, they were able to, to conquer the land, to take it over over time for the most part. But then as, uh, as uh, various difficulties rise, the sin within them rose. There were just simply generations after generations of infidelity and disobedience. And again and again, God's people failed, failed to become who God had called them to be. And according to Moses and according to the prophets, God spoke of a day that should they not repent, that in fact, he would remove them from the land. And of course, that's exactly what happened. History shows both in the Bible as well as in, uh, as in uh, the history uh, from other people groups, that, that God's people were taken. First, uh, the northern kingdom uh, under the Assyrians, and then the, the southern kingdom was taken and uh, brought into Babylon. And, uh, and overwhelmingly, all of the, influence, the influencers, those who were uh, in charge, if you will, were removed from Jerusalem, removed from Judea, and taken to Babylon, where they were placed in exile. And only the poorest of the poor were left to, to stay into the land. And the prophet Jeremiah, as, uh, as, as, uh, um, as was just read for us by Kathy, uh, the prophet Jeremiah said, who, who, who anticipated the exile, he said, look, it's time, it's going to happen. God is finally going to do what he's threatened to do. And he sends God's people into exile and then says, but look, in 70 years, I will bring my people back. And so we see very powerful that the story of Ezra begins with a reminder of, 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 this, of Jeremiah's prophecy that in truth, God would bring people back. But what, 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 what the, the persons who returned, the, few, the faithful few who returned, they returned to really what was rubble. Jerusalem was a disaster. There was political upheaval. There was um, all manner of uncertainty as to the future. And the faith of everyone who returned in a very real way, felt futile. There have been generations of unfaithfulness to God. You can look at chapter 2, verse 1, if you've got the Bible in front of you. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles. So these are those who returned. They they were in captivity, they were in Babylon, and now they're returning. And what's so sad is that if you look in chapter 2, verse 64, that the actual number of people who return, it's right there, verse 64, the whole company numbered 42,360. And only a small portion of those who went into exile actually even came back. And so, not only as, as, as these followers, as these followers of Yahweh, as these Jews were seeking to be faithful, not only was there a multi generational impact of, of generations after generations of sin that, that made them ask, can we be any different? And let's be honest, are we any better? Can we actually be more faithful than our forefathers? They're asking questions like, what did we do wrong? And how can we prevent that from ever happening again? The momentum of history was just crushing upon them. Think, is it really possible to be faithful to the Lord? And not only the, pre- the momentum of previous generations, but the momentum of their own time, their own fellow Jews who were being unfaithful to the Lord. Why bother going back? We're fine in Babylon. Why bother going, go, bother going back when, and up and just, just uprooting our lives in Babylon? Why bother living in a way that is truly faithful to the Lord? You know one of the most difficult things about being a Christian today is that so many people call themselves Christians and don't begin to begin to walk the walk. And it's tempting to compare ourselves. It's tempting to, to simply live a life of convenient Christianity. Well, these exiles, these returned exiles were asking, why is there still so much compromise? Why, is the, why are the people of God still so weak? Why does it feel so anticlimactic? Is this it? I'm looking around thinking, is this it? But Ezra speaks to our feelings of futility in a powerful way. Listen to this. He says they are just... Feelings. That's what they are. That's, they're just that. They're feelings. And he says the facts are very different. In fact, according to Ezra, the facts point to one thing. Are you ready for this? I want you to hear this this morning. God's power, God's power over princes calls us to a pursuit of purity. God's power over princes calls us to the pursuit of Purity. So just as these returned exiles were pawns for the king Cyrus, Cyrus was a pawn of Yahweh. That's the first point this morning. when He said that God is the power over princes and presidents. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. Here we see God moving the heart of the ruler of really what was the known world. Here Cyrus is simply a prophetic agent. Certainly of Jeremiah, even even the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was eighth century. This is this is uh, this is amazing to think of the time frame here. This is fifth, sixth century. This is the two two hundred year, two hundred plus years later. Now let me just let me just think about that for a second. What is is it really true that God has the power to make princes and presidents His instruments, His unwitting instruments to accomplish the will of God's people, and that has direct bearing, direct bearing in how we Christians think about politics. Let me ask you a question. How important is this upcoming presidential election? What does the press want you to believe? They want you to believe that everything's at stake, everything. And you can see that on the progressive side, you can see it on the conservative side. Everyone thinks that everything is at stake. I want to ask you, did God use Cyrus to accomplish his purposes? Now, let me just do a timeout real quick. If you had to choose between either, on the one hand, Joe Biden or President Trump, either one of those two, or Cyrus, or Nero, or Stalin— or Mao tongue. <laughs> who would you rather have over you? I'll take either one of those guys, Biden or Trump, any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Okay, think about that just for a second. Now, if God is able to use Cyrus unwittingly, unknowingly, Cyrus basically, you look at the edict there in verses 2 through 4, He's he, he, uh, very, power. I mean, just this is so common in the ancient world. You, you come into a people group, you conquer them, and you say, who's your God? Oh, yeah, I'll worship him too. In fact, I'm doing God's will. And the religion is co-opted in this amazing, brilliant political strategy. And, and it, was, it was in his best interest that so he wanted all the temples of all the gods to be, um, to be up and running. He wanted to support all of them. Because, hey, why not take advantage of all the gods? You know, head your bets, make sure. And, of course, that's what he's doing here. So on the one hand, he is, in a sense, very much the unwitting agent or instrument of God. On the other hand, he's being simply a political opportunist. And I want to ask you the question again, did did God use Cyrus? Absolutely. And can God use Donald Trump? Can God use Joe Biden? Listen, I'm not saying that politics is irrelevant, but we live in a culture, saturated social media culture, that insists that everything is at stake. And the truth is that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord so that means that we are to engage, we are to be involved in politics. We are to be engaged, we are to be our minds, uh, thinking, our hearts involved and, and engaged in discussion. This is not, this is not an isolationism, it's not a, a quiet private pietism. It's the knowledge of who's really in control, of where power really lies, and of God's ability to do whatever he wants. That the kings of this earth, the princes and the presidents are pawns in the hands of the prince of peace. And so knowing that God has power over those princes, that he has power over presidents, we are called not to worry every day and to sit there and wonder who's going to win and to think that everything's at stake and be so distracted by that. Rather, we are to say, God's got that. I'm going to vote wisely, but I'm going to focus on what? I'm going to pursue what? Well, what in chapter 2 do these do these, uh, these former exiles, these returned exiles, what do they, they focus on? And the answer is purity. I'll come to that in a second. Now let me just say one more comment here about princes and presidents. What's fascinating is we could take the time, we're not going to do it now, but could, you could look at the life of Cyrus. And it's an amazing, I mean, it's, it's, you just you know, check it out on Google sometime, check out Cyrus the Great. And you just see a, a, you know, someone who has, has infinitely more power than any president ever would. And the man is amazing in the sense that, on the one hand, he's an absolute tyrant; on the other hand, he's an incredibly gifted person. And I mention that because I want to, I want to, I want I, I would so. It's so important for us as Christians not to vilify those in positions of political power. To understand that they can be God's agents in all kinds of ways, regardless of their motives. That they are actually prophetic agents, but they are also political opportunists. To understand that there is a, and a dignity to them and an instrumentality and an agency to them, but also a depravity to them. And not going to be surprised by either one. Let me just share a brief story with you. Um, this is told by uh, a man who's a, who, was a, who is a Nobel Prize winning psychologist. His name is Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman. And he describes a story from his childhood. He grew up. Listen to this. He grew up in uh, in Paris, and uh, he was born probably in the I think around 1935 or so. And so, when the Germans came into Paris and they occupied Paris, uh, he himself, caught him and he's, he's the son of, uh, of of Lithuanian Jews. And uh, and then for you know, those of you who know your history a little bit, you know that Jews at that time were asked to, or were forced to wear a star, a star of David, right, wherever they went and, 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 and uh, Kahneman recounts a story of when he was probably seven or eight. read me he, he read it to you. He tells it so well. He says this, It must have been late 1941 or early 1942. The Jews were required to wear the Star of David and to obey a 6 p.m. curfew. I'd gone to play with a Christian friend and had stayed too late. I turned my brown sweater inside out. It's pretty smart, isn't it? I turned my brown sweater inside out to uh, to walk the few blocks home. And as I was walking down an empty street, I saw a German soldier approaching. He was wearing the black uniform that I had been told to fear more than the others. The, The uniforms worn by specially recruited SS soldiers. As I came closer to him, trying to walk fast, I noticed that he was looking at me intently. Then he beckoned me over and picked me up and hugged me. I was terrified that he would notice the star inside my sweater. He was speaking to me with great emotion in German. When he put me down, he opened his wallet, showed me a picture of a boy, and gave me some money. (laughs) I went home more certain than ever that my mother was right. People were endlessly complicated and interesting. Now, who's more villainized or who's regarded with more contempt and more disdain than the SS, right? I mean, the Nazi, the Nazi German soldiers. And yet, he, it's more complex than that. Yes, there is depravity. No one here is promoting anything like that. It, he, but, but if you actually get to understand your history and you know how complicated resistance was and what it would be like to be a husband and father in the German military, Oh my goodness! How complicated would that be? But here's this man who see clearly what happens, you can tell what happens, right? This, this man he sees this, and I, he sees this, this young Jewish boy, ironically, and he clearly reminds him of his son. And he's moved with emotion. There's a dignity, there's a humanity there. And I mention that story because so often we can vilify our, our politicians. Again, do they make mistakes? Or are they, or is there corruption? Of course there is. Duh. There's corruption in here. I'm not minimizing them, but there, there is a dignity to them as well. And here's Cyrus, this, this massive tyrant, despot, you know, doing, you know and, and he's being used by God to get things done. In a major ways, ways he doesn't even realize. So that he'll be long gone, his religion will be long gone, everything that he ever built is going to be long gone. And the truth the truth of the scriptures, the purposes of God will stand firm forever. He doesn't even realize it. So I'm going to ask you in this time of his Christians one of the major points is for us to be able to say, hey, you know what? God has got this. He is in power. He is able to use. He's got the, the hand, the heart of the prince in his hand. I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to, I'm going to vote. I'm going to think about him. I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to find Christians who disagree with me, and we're going to talk, and we're going to be friends. I'm not going to vilify my opponents. I'm not going to vilify those who disagree with me. I'm going to recognize that God is in control. Let me just give you a quote here from C.S. Lewis, uh, Screwtape Letters. Those of you who are familiar with Screwtape Letters, it's a book written by C.S. Lewis, and the whole notion of the book is that it's written by a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how to undermine the ways of God, how to get into the heart of a Christian and really mess things up. It speaks about spiritual warfare. And by the way, I will say there is a, uh, there's a quote going around social media right now that is supposedly from Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've seen it. It is not from Screwtape Letters. I mean, this is so typical social media. It's like this thing. Hey, C.S. Lewis said this from Screw Tape Letters, and has nothing that it was not written by C.S. Lewis. So anyway, but this was actually a quote really written by C.S. Lewis that I want to read to you from Screw Tape Letters. Listen to this. This is the senior demon writing the junior demon, and he says they. This is this is a they that is Christians, committed Christians. They will not apply themselves steadily to worldly advancement. You know, just always be thinking about how can they get ahead in the world. They will not commit themselves steadily to worldly advancement, to prudent connections, you know, making all the right connections with the right people. He says They will not apply themselves to, to, the, to the policy of safety first. In other words, these Christians are going to be kind of reckless. They're going to take risks. They're going to sacrifice. They're going to do things that maybe vocationally or personally are, are, are unwise or foolish. Listen to this. He says, so inveterate, Is their appetite for heaven, their love for heaven, that our best method, as you know, as as the the forces of darkness, our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth, making them think that earth is their their place, our best method is to make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics. How do you distract them? How do we get them off what is really important? He says, oh, you make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics or eugenics or science or psychology or whatnot. To use my own words, the evil one wants us to believe that you can use politics, that politics are a God that will get us back to the garden. Okay? And, and, and we're seeing this early chapter. Where we're seeing God use Cyrus, but not need Cyrus. Okay? So, again, the fundamental idea is that his power over princes calls us to do what? Verse chapter chapter 2. In chapter 2, we see this listing of God's people, of all those who returned, of those who are willing to make the sacrifice, to go back, and to actually re- begin to rebuild. The sanctuary to rebuild the temple of God, to devote themselves. And we see it's exactly what Cyrus commands. He says in his decree, he says, look, go back and rebuild. And, he, and, and Ezra lists the various implements and instruments and, 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 and uh, the, the, the various parts of the temple that were used. And it's what's so important to go back and worship, to go back and be pure, to go back and pursue a love for the Lord. He, he calls us, again, his power over princes calls us not to sit there and be consumed with politics, but rather to be, to be pursuing of purity. And listen, this is not a purity that is private. It's not a purity that's simply just about me. It's not a withdrawal from the world. It's a purity that is not for privacy, but for peace, for the flourishing. Peace within, but also peace around. Peace within us, but also peace around us. Listen, there is nothing more dangerous than a community of Christians. Let me say it this way. There's nothing more dangerous politically than a group of Christians who are committed together to pursue holiness before the Lord. That will be a highly dangerous, highly effective political organization the greatest movement in American history the civil rights the greatest, the greatest political movement in American history the civil rights movement was through and through a religious revival let me just conclude with this Charles Murray in his book Coming Apart speaks of how our America is coming apart along the lines of class He's saying that, that, that America is divided by zip codes. That there's that, that certain zip codes that have a certain level of, of, of education, a certain level of, of, uh, of income. They live culturally in a different world from those who have low income, low education. And, and the ways of living, how they do life when it comes to marriage and children and family, is just different. Radically, the world's apart there are two Americas and and he speaks of all the pathologies that are plaguing America and listen to this so Charles Murray is is no Christian he's a Harvard uh, Harvard uh, political scientist Charles Murray speaks of how in the world can America and all of this polarization how can it ever fix these things is there any way to bring America together there's any way to heal America and what Murray does is astonishing he says well look I I'm actually really cynical there's probably no way that America will heal. He says, but let me tell you about one small possibility. And he refers to a Nobel Prize winning economist who basically says, look, there have been three times in America where we have come back from the breach of moral decay, come back from the breach of political chaos. And each one of them has come in the wake of these things called awakenings. This is an economist, okay? He has no idea about religion or anything like that, but he's, he's an historian. And he sees trends. Like how, how, did we, how, did we, how did America recover economically, politically, socially? How did we recover in these different ages of, of decline? And he says, well, there's these things called awakenings, great awakenings. And so here are two men, one's an economist, one's a political scientist, neither one of them are Christians, and they're saying, you know what? The only hope is that America might have another great awakening. Isn't that crazy? The only hope is that these Christians over here might actually preach the gospel. It's amazing. It says, um, to quote him briefly, and I'll, I'll finish up here. His thesis, uh, Fogel, Fogel's thesis, the economist's thesis, drew upon a curious feature of American history. Since colonial days, America has periodically been swept, swept by religious movements known as Great Awakenings. Historians agreed that there were three of them, and each characterized by powerful preachers, revivalism, and evangelical enthusiasm. The first being, he gives the dates of the various ones, and he says this. He speaks of each of the three Great Awakenings as having, quote, a political aftermath. A phase in which the new ethics... That is the, a, a better way of living, a godlier way of living, a, a holier way of living, a way of purity, a phase in which the new ethics precipitates powerful political programs and movements. That's astonishing. In other words, if we actually want to bring healing and, 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 uh, and bring renewal politically, the place to start is right here in this community. As you and I pursue purity Together, Christian, are you active in thinking about how you want to live your life like Christ? Are you looking honestly? Are you battling sin every day? Are you, are you seeking to simply say, look, not my will, but your will be done? Because that is the greatest thing that we can do as citizens of the United States of America, it's not just sit there on my Facebook and just post this article and that article and this article. This will show them. This meme will change the world. I mean, I sometimes look at folk, I sit there, I, f- I flip through my Facebook thing, I feed, and just like, oh, someone tell me about their life or say something about their kids or something because it's just all it is. It's just this political activism. And it's like, does this really do anything? Listen, let me close with this Jesus. Change the world by pursuing purity. The single most strategic thing that we can do in life is to obey, especially when all seems lost, when all seems futile. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, how often my feelings on a daily basis simply overcome me feelings of self-pity, feelings of futility, feelings of uh, just the, the, the simple insanity of life, the impossibility of life. Father, how quick I am to, to accuse you, to just say, what's the point? Father, I pray that you would recover my eyesight, that I would see that throughout history, there are princes come and princes go. Politicians come and politicians go, but they mostly go. Father, that no one remembers, no one recalls the great pharaohs of old, the great Caesars of the empire. Father, no one recalls them. No one follows them. No one one studies them except for historical interest. Father, but Jesus Christ reigns forever. And Father, this morning we renew our allegiance to him. We ask that we would indeed pursue lives of purity together, that we would follow you as Samson said, that indeed, that we would not love our lives so much to shrink back from death. That we would triumph over the evil one through the the power of your word and through the testimony of the saints. The blood, the blood of the Lamb and through the testimony of your saints. Father, please change us that we might live lives of purity, that we might bring about peace in our nation and around the world. Father, hear these prayers. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.